Now, let us now turn to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guard the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So far the scripture reading. Thank you, Case, and good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be able to worship together and to open God's Word. Uh, the sermon this morning will be drawn from this psalm. So uh, following last week, it seems we unintentionally have a, a little mini-series on psalms. Um, but I also wanted to just add another reading, and this is taken from uh, the book of Numbers, uh, Numbers 6 from verse 22. Um, these are words that <clears throat> I think we are much more used to hearing at the end of a service. Uh, it's a, a great statement of blessing. In fact, you may have eaten a, a little bit uh, of these verses because it was also on Clinton's farewell cake uh, two weeks ago. So, um, Numbers 6 from verse 22. Uh, before we begin to read, let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing as we consider these words. Lord God, we thank you for your word, for its truth, and for its power, and for the opportunity now to reflect on it. And we pray, Lord, that you will enlighten our hearts and our minds as we uh, meditate on Scripture, and Lord, that you will also give us the ability not only to hear, but also to be obedient to what you tell us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, number six from verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name on the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So these words are often known as the ironic blessing, and uh, people in ancient Israel would have heard this very, very often, uh, as it, of course, expressed the idea of God's blessing on his people. Can I now ask you to turn to Psalm 67 and uh, keep that open before you? Uh, today's sermon will, in essence, just be a slow read throughout uh, this psalm. Um, if you uh, do not have a Bible, there's some at the back, and uh, again, you're more than welcome to hang on to it uh, afterwards. So thank you, Case, for reading this psalm. Let's begin to just um, think through some of its uh, implications. And I want to begin this sermon by uh, talking about our use of the first-person possessive pronoun as it relates to God. I've just submitted my entry for the most boring sermon intro ever. Um, <laughs> so um, allow me to explain. The possessive pronoun is, of course, my, uh, my God. 
just the phrase, my God. Let's think a little bit about how we, uh, in our society, use this phrase. Now, of course, uh, for some people, it is nothing more than a profanity. People uh, tend to be willing to say, my God, at every opportunity, often without thinking really about what, what all of this means. It's a stopgap phrase. Um, and, you know, we've obviously heard lots of examples of that. I guess we can also say that it is an example of taking the name of the Lord in vain. Um, so not, not a recommended use in any way, shape, or form. Another meaning is associated with idol worship. And, and I have the opportunity to uh, think about this almost every night as I go for my uh, nightly walk. I walk past the house uh, where the uh, windows are often, uh, the curtains are often open, and I can see a Hindu home altar. Uh, with some candles burning in front of it. And sometimes the lady of the house is even busy, you know, uh, with lighting those candles and, and offering her worship. Now, if we apply the phrase, my God, to her, I guess she should be able, or would be able to refer to the statue that she's praying to uh, as my God. In, in a very literal sense, it is hers, not only in the spiritual sense that she bows before it, but it's also my God, in the sense that she probably went to a store at some stage and paid good money to buy it and put it in her house. Uh, she owns it, uh, in other words. So these are two ways in which we can probably use the phrase. Hopefully none of us are tempted very often to do either of these, to use the phrase, my God, in a profane way, or also in the uh, use of idolatry. But we are not totally exempt from using the phrase, my God, in ways that are less than helpful. Some of you, hopefully many of you, are familiar with C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. It supposedly contains letters from a senior to a junior devil with the subject of how better to tempt humans. And in it, the senior devil, Screwtape, says the following about the use of the phrase, my God. He writes, and this is, of course, instructions to the junior devil in terms of how to better tempt humans. Um, he says, we must, must teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun. The finely graded differences that run from my boots, through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, my country, and my God. The word my is applied in all cases. But there's, of course, a huge difference between saying my boots and at the other end of the spectrum, my God. Screwtape says, they, in other words, humans, can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots. In other words, the sense of my ownership. To put it bluntly, that people can be taught to think we own God. He is my God in this sense. In this sense, my God becomes the God who is obligated to care for me, the God who is obligated to bless me, to look out for me. Beyond that, he should also only do it for me. He's my God, after all. We can hold to this notion of God to such an extent that we can even become angry and envious when God cares for others, when God blesses others. Perhaps the clearest indication of this we find in the book of Jonah, where Jonah has the most epic sulk uh, 
at the end of the, the book because God blessed Nineveh. How dare he? How dare God extend his blessings beyond him and his people? This is how it's described. Jonah 4, verses 1 to 4. But it, ex- it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, how dare God show mercy to anyone but me and my people? This is just one example. There are many other examples in Scripture where people seem to think that the best possible response to God's blessings is to say, they mine, they mine alone. So there are many other examples in the Bible where people seem to think that the best possible response to God's blessings is to say, they are mine and mine alone. In fact, it seems that this kind of us versus them attitude was often the default response in terms of thinking about God's blessings among the people of ancient Israel. Before we are too quick to condemn them, let us confess that we may even be guilty of it ourselves, that we may consciously or unconsciously seek to hoard the blessings of God. And this sermon and this psalm will hopefully be somewhat of a corrective to this. Because the best corrective to a restrictive understanding of God's grace is to remember that it is not diminished in the sharing. That in our example above, God's grace to the people of Nineveh did not mean that there was less grace going around for the people of Israel. In fact, there's a rich tradition in Scripture that reminds us that God's blessings are meant to be shared. Let me take you back all the way to what might be seen as the starting point of the people of Israel, the calling of Abraham, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 2, or to 3, sorry. Uh, The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Full stop. That's it. Is that all that God said? No, of course not. God continued, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will dis- and him who dishonor you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The statement of blessing here is inextricably linked to the fact that the blessing comes so that it can also go. The blessing comes so that it can be shared with others. I will bless you to, make, or to, to be a blessing. Another place, of course, where this theme is displayed so very clearly is in the psalm that we read this morning. The first thing that we notice is that it is obviously a prayer in which the concept of God's blessing is central. It occurs on almost every second line. When we stop to think why this might be, uh, many commentators believe that this was a psalm that was sung especially when the harvest was brought in. 
So a time when we are especially conscious of the fact that, as verse 6 says, the land has given its increase, we have much to live on, we can be thankful for the material blessings of God. People at this time of year would have been particularly conscious of God's provision and His care. And therefore, they're able to think through what it means to be blessed. The psalm can also, furthermore, be understood as a bit of a meditation on the words that we read earlier from number 6, verse 24 to 26. The great ironic blessing that uh, the people of Israel would have heard very, very often. Listen to how that starts. Again, number 6, verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And now the first line of Psalm 67. May the Lord, or may God, be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine upon us. You know, so it's very, very obvious that there are significant parallels between this psalm and those words of blessing. And, of course, you know, to the people of Israel, this would have been something that they would have immediately caught and that would have been very familiar to them. Praying for God's blessings, receiving God's blessings, um, was very much part of their self-understanding. And maybe a good place to start in our thinking through this is to remind ourselves that when we receive good things, when we receive blessings, it is appropriate to acknowledge and thank God as the source of those blessings. James said it wonderfully in James 1 verse 17, every good <laughs> and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good and perfect gift is from above. So it is appropriate, therefore, to stop sometimes and to thank God for His blessings, for the many good things that He brings into our lives. However, as far as many people are concerned, the psalm could equally just have stopped here. God, you have blessed us. We thank you. Amen. But of course, this is not where the psalm ends. The psalmist does not simply say, we receive God's blessing. <coughs> Excuse me. He's our God. That is enough. Instead, the psalmist continues, and he does so in a way that cements the psalm as one of the high points of the entire Old Testament in terms of understanding Israel's wider calling, her calling to bless the nations. As such, it is also a reminder of the worldwide calling of the Christian church that we are part of. Henry Spence wrote the following about this psalm. No wonder this beautiful little psalm has been enshrined so prominently in the worship of the Christian church. Its most remarkable character is its worldwide breadth of sympathy, hope, and prayer. It's like a beam from the unrisen sun of Christianity. The more one studies the intense, narrow national sentiment of the Jews, the more plain is, its, is it that strains like these could only be inspired by the Spirit of God. In other words, the psalm goes so strongly against our natural inclinations to hoard God's blessings for himself, for ourselves. And so what exactly did the Spirit inspire in this psalm? The answer is easy. Fervent prayer for the nations, for those who are still outside, who do not share in the blessing. 
taking you back to the psalm, the, uh, the key can be found in the statement, that, or we can translate it with, so that. May God be gracious to us and bless us, verse 1, and make His face shine upon us, that, or so that, your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. In praying this prayer, the psalmist essentially echoes the words of God to Abraham that we read earlier, that there will be blessing, but that this blessing will also overflow in a sense so that the nations might be blessed. The evidence of God's blessing, this psalm seems to indicate, should be so clear that Israel can act as a kind of an attractive force that will pull nations towards a relationship with God. Indeed, Isaiah prophesied a time when nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. That the blessing of God on His people may act almost as a kind of a magnet and as a searchlight showing the goodness of God so that people might say, may we also share in this blessing. If this was true in Old Testament times, how much more true should it be in our time? now that the full extent of God's mercies in Christ had been revealed. The way in which we enjoy and live out God's salvation in Jesus should be of such a nature that that as well would act as a magnet to those who are still outside of the kingdom. It's instructive to note what the psalmist prays for the nations. He again emphasized the fact that uh, the people of Israel had been blessed, and now it goes into three very specific prayer requests. Um, he's not simply saying, well, Lord, in general, just bless all of them. <laughs> he's praying three very, very specific things for the peoples uh, of the world. Let's look at those prayer requests in turn. Firstly, the psalmist prays that the nations will receive divine revelation and salvation. Revelation and salvation. Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. In other words, may people know the teachings of God and may they know it to such an extent that some of them will know it in a saving way. The nations are blinded by the spirit of the age, they do not know the saving power of God's message, or in New Testament language, they do not know the gospel. This is therefore a prayer for an understanding of the way of God that is so complete that it will equate with saving faith. If we can translate this prayer a little bit, we might say that the psalmist here is praying, Lord, reveal yourself to a lost world. May people of every nation one day be able to sing in the words of John Newton's amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. So first prayer request for divine revelation and salvation. Secondly, the psalmist prays that the worship of God will be established among the nations. Verses 3 and 5. This is a kind of a refrain that... Um, we see uh, almost bracketing sections of the psalm. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations 
be glad and sing for joy. Here the psalmist foresees the nations coming before God in worship and adoration, finding in God the one who is ultimately the only one worthy of worship. There can be no more important prayer for the nations than that they would achieve this ultimate purpose by returning to their Creator in worship. The author John Piper once reflected on this psalm in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, and and just on the general nature of missions in general, and penned the famous line, missions exist because worship doesn't. We go into the world with the message of the great God and King of the universe, with the message of the gospel, because many people in many nations are not yet worshiping their Creator. And the psalmist here prays for the day when (coughs) people (coughs) from many nations will bow down uh, before God (coughs) in worship. We see a remarkable glimpse of the fulfillment of this prayer in Revelation 5.9, where we get a look behind the curtain, as it were, uh, of the nations coming in and the nations fully worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ for His mercy and grace. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain with your blood. You purchased men for God. And then the key phrase here, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. People from every tribe, language, people and nation will eventually stand before the throne of God, worshipping Him for His saving power. And this psalm is, in a sense, a foreshadowing of that and a prayer for the fulfillment of uh, this founding purpose of all of humanity, the worship of their great God and King. So first prayer request, that the nations will receive divine revelation and salvation, that they will ultimately find in God, the only one truly worthy of worship. And then the third prayer request, that they will ultimately acknowledge God's rule. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. The prayer here is that the nations will also enjoy the benefits of belonging to God's kingdom and of following His decrees and teachings, that they would find a new way of living, a way of living in which loving God and loving neighbor becomes the way to live. So in summary, we see the psalmist reflecting on God's blessing and mercy for the people of Israel, and then following it up remarkably with these prayer requests for those who are outside of this nation, that the nations or the peoples may be saved, that they may praise God, and that they may enjoy God's just rule. In other words, he prays that the good news of who God is will fully enter the lives of the nation, the nations. From a New Testament perspective, we understand just how good this news is, even beyond what the people of Israel understood when this psalm was first sung. After the cross and the empty grave, we know of God's amazing grace in Christ, how the blood of Christ was shed 
on the cross for us and our salvation, how his power was confirmed through the empty grave, how he sits at the right hand of God to intercede for us. These are amazing blessings in the fullest sense of the word. However, may we never fall into the trap of believing that God's grace in Christ is meant for us alone, that it is somehow diminished in the sharing. Indeed, when Jesus himself spoke about the good news to his disciples, he included themes that would have been very familiar to the psalmist of Psalm 67, because he calls on his followers to share this message with all nations, Matthew 28, 19, and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1, verse 8. This now brings us full circle to the phrase, my God, with which we started. It occurs in Psalm 67 as well, right near the end. However, significantly, it is in the plural form. It is our God, not my God. We find it directly after a reference to the blessing of the harvest. Uh, The psalmist says the land has yielded its increase. In other words, the harvest came in, and then God, our God, shall bless us. At the risk of stating the obvious, this is a prayer of the community of God's people. It is addressed to our God and not, in the first instance, to my God. This lines up perfectly with the way in which Jesus himself taught us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Yes, he is the God of each of us individually, but he's also the God of us as a people. This means that the blessings of belonging to God are in the first instance to be shared and enjoyed within the community of the faithful and then with the nations. Even so, this is not where the psalm ends. It does not, again, just speak of the fact that God will bless us. No, the last words sounded in this psalm again, has the nations in mind. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. Verse 7. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. So again and again, almost relentlessly, this psalm associates the blessing of God to us as a people with the blessing of the nations, with those who are still on the outside, who may not uh, fully understand what this blessing means. Blessed to be a blessing indeed. So we've now finished our slow reading through the psalm, leaving us with the obvious, obvious question, what does being blessed to be a blessing mean for us as Christians here at the beginning of the 21st century? Is it just a great little sentiment expressed in an ancient psalm, or are there things that we can and should apply to our lives. Not surprisingly, I believe it is the latter. Firstly, when we experience blessings from God on whatever level, one of our first instincts should be to reflect on how those blessings can be shared with others. I believe that this also includes physical or material blessings. After all, the psalm was most probably sung in the context of bringing in a physical harvest. Over the next few weeks, as we uh, enter the period of Advent uh, towards Christmas, we will have plenty of opportunities to share some of those material blessings that God has blessed us with, with others, including many local initiatives and the Compassionate Catalog, 
to uh, share with people around the world. Let us indeed make the best possible use of those opportunities. Secondly, there are many prayer requests that we can pray where we can, in a real sense, be part of the answer to those prayers. If we pray, Lord, bless the nations, bring people closer to you, let them understand your salvation, we can indeed uh, be part of the answer to that prayer. We can talk to people about the mercy of God, about His just rule, about His salvation. In short, we can and we should talk, uh, talk about and live out the gospel. Remember, this is not a blessing that is somehow diminished in the sharing. Let us individually and as a church, therefore, be as free and as open as possible in sharing the message of Jesus with others. And then lastly, let's remember that this is a psalm that is worldwide, global in scope. Uh, again and again, we hear of the nations and of the ends of the earth. The very same kind of words that Jesus used when he gave us the Great Commission. Share the gospel, this message, with all nations uh, and to the ends of the earth. Of course, we need to do locally whatever we can to share the blessings of God. However, let us never forget that our faith is a global faith and that there are believers brothers and sisters around the world, in every nation of the world, speaking just about every language of the world, sharing the message of Jesus. Let us never forget to pray for them, to support them in whatever manner possible. And in some cases, maybe even answer the call to go and join them, if God calls you to do that. Let me conclude. Psalm 67 is a powerful reminder that although the blessings of God are wonderful in themselves, they should always cause us to think how these may be shared with those still on the outside. About 500 years ago, John Calvin meditated on these words, and specifically on the fact that uh, understanding and receiving the blessing of God can indeed lead to such great blessings for the nations. He writes, here it is to be remembered that every benefit which God bestowed upon his ancient people was, as it were, a light held out before the eyes of the world to attract the attention of the nations to him. From this, the psalmist argues that should God liberally supply the wants of his people, the consequence would be to increase the fear of his name since all the ends of the earth would, by what they saw of his fatherly, fatherly regard to his own, submit themselves with great cheerfulness to him. May this indeed be the case as we receive and share God's blessings with this world. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the many ways in which you materially bless us. We thank you also for all your spiritual blessings in Christ that we can rest assured that through his great merit, we are secure in this world and into the next. That is indeed such a great blessing. But Lord, we pray that you will keep us from hoarding either material or spiritual blessings. That in the words of this psalm, the nations will also be glad and be, be blessed because you have blessed your people. 
Help us to share the good things that you've given us, including the message of the gospel, with those still on the outside. Help us to do whatever we can to not only see that it happens here in our own community, but also to the ends of the earth through our support and our prayer and our going when it comes to the mission of your worldwide church. And Lord, in all these things, we do pray that ultimately it will be your name that will be glorified as the peoples praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.